Good to be here again. I was looking at my schedule, and it looks like I come in about once a year. So this is my annual visit to the Village Church. I mean, in terms of preaching, I was here before when Larry was here. and um, For your anniversary, yeah. I was here for your anniversary service, so um, it's good to be back. I'm going to be reading our scripture, then uh, praying. It comes from uh, Psalm 51. You could turn there. Psalm 51. Do you stand for the reading of the word? Different churches have different traditions. Let us hear God's word. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness, Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, our God, our King, we rejoice because you have given us the honor of knowing you. You have opened our eyes to see. That's a gift. That's a gift that you've given your saints. You've given your elect, predestined before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless in your sight. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would open up your word to us this morning, that it would convict us, 
Convince us of the reality of how much you love us. Convince us and convict us of our sin that we may confess those before you and be renewed through your Holy Spirit and become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. I pray to that end because Jesus is our Lord who died for our sins, was raised on the third day, ascended into heaven, and sitteth on the right hand of the Father even now. Thank you, Jesus, for such grace, such wonderful grace. And I pray that you would help us hear your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. May be seated. Have you ever looked at your sin and wondered, am I really saved? Are you struggling with a besetting sin that has nagged you for years, but you can't seem to give it up? Have you committed a sin so gross that you felt ashamed before God? Well, you're not alone. We have a record of a famous biblical character who committed a gross sin. The sin was followed by more sin as he tried to cover it up. Yet the scriptures tell us that this was a man after God's own heart. How could that be? And you probably know that we are talking about the author of Psalm 51 who is or who was King David. His sin was no secret. In fact, the superscription on Psalm 51 reads, if you were to open your scriptures, it says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Can you imagine writing out a confession of your deepest, darkest, most despicable thing that you have ever done and turning it into a song for the choir to sing? This was essentially what David did. Not only did David write this confession, but God included it in the scriptures so that 2,500 years from then, people would still read about David's horrific fall. Why why would God inspire the writing and the reading and even singing of such a confession? And the answer is that so that when we fall, and we will, We will know how to get back up and how to come home to our God. God left us a guide for getting back home. And that guide is called repentance. Psalm 51 has become a source of encouragement for millions over the years. It's a psalm of hope. It's a psalm that should greatly encourage us because if David could fall, a man after God's own heart, in such a manner Any one of us can and perhaps have. Psalm 51 teaches us that we can come back home to God because we worship a God of grace. Even after we've blown up our lives, we can come back. It is a psalm that shows us how to get back when we fall. It's a psalm that teaches us how to repent. And although repentance is at the very heart of the gospel, There's a lot of misconceptions about what repentance actually means. Some people think that repentance is directed primarily at unbelievers. It's 
what you do at a campaign. Some of us in here might have remembered the Billy Graham crusades when they would have an altar call and they would ask people who wanted to be saved to come forward to repent of their sins. Many of us believe that repentance is a joy killer, a depressing time of self-examination and introspection. But you want to know something? Repentance is actually a joy. It's a seed for spiritual revival. I hope that we can begin to see that today. Some of us believe that repentance is only for the beginning of the Christian life, or perhaps for gross sins. But repentance is at the very heart of the gospel, and it's important that we know how to repent throughout our lives. Jesus began his ministry with the words, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Martin Luther, the great reformer, nailing the 95 theses to the door of the castle in Wittenberg, Germany, said the very, in, 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 in the very first thesis stated that when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he will the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Jack Miller, the founder of World Harvest Mission, now known as Surge, in his book Repentance in the 20th Century Man, said, To be near God and to have God near us is the whole purpose of human life. But without sincere repentance, there can be no face-to-face fellowship with the Father of lights. And one of the best studies in repentance is comes to us in Psalm 51. So I want us to look at that today. But before we can understand Psalm 51, we have to do a quick review of the story. Some of us may know the story, may not have heard the story, or some of us may be more familiar with it, but not familiar with it lately. But it comes from Second Samuel chapter 11 and 12, and the story begins, In the springtime when kings go off to war, David remained in Jerusalem. And one evening, David is walking on the roof of his palace, and he sees a beautiful woman, and he inquires about who she is, and he finds out that she is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of David's mighty men, who's out fighting the war where David probably should have been. David sends for her and commits adultery. Months later, Bathsheba sends word to David that she is pregnant. David decides to send for Uriah, ostensibly for the purpose of getting information about the fighting, but secretly planning to get Uriah to go back home and to be with his wife. David confers with Uriah and tells him to go home, wash your feet, relax, be with your wife. But Uriah has too much integrity. His men are out in the field fighting and he will not enjoy the comforts of home. And so he decides to just lay at the foot of the castle and doesn't go home. David sends and asks him, why didn't you go home? Uriah didn't want to go back home. He feels that he doesn't deserve this privilege. 
So David needs to cook up another plan, and so he decides to try another way. And he invites Uriah to his palace, and he gets him drunk. And David assumes that Uriah will go home, but Uriah doesn't go home. Uriah has more integrity drunk than David does sober. So David sends Uriah back to the front line with a note to Joab the general. And the note reads, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. Can you imagine going back with a note that is destined to kill you? And the man has so much integrity, he doesn't read the note. And Joab did as instructed, and Uriah the Hittite is killed. And Joab follows up. And he sends word back to David, and David takes in Bathsheba, and she becomes his wife. And then we read in 2 Samuel 11.27, which has got to be the most understated scripture when it says that what David had done displeased the Lord. Well, months pass by, and David thinks everything is okay. But then one day, Nathan the prophet comes to David, and he tells him a story about a landowner, a rich landowner, who had hundreds of sheep and lambs and everything, and he has a guest who comes to his house. And there was a neighbor who had one little ewe lamb, and the story embellishes how this lamb was the pet And he slept with him, and it really embellishes the story of this one little ewe lamb from this poor man and how the rich landowner decides when he has a feast, instead of using taking one of his hundreds, he goes to to the landowner and he takes his one little ewe lamb and he kills him. And he says, what do you think needs to be done to that person? And David, perhaps thinking it's a true story, says, that man deserves to die. And what has got to be the shortest pointed application of a sermon, Nathan says, thou art the man. And David is deeply convicted and realizes that he has sinned. And he confesses that he has sinned. And I don't know how long it took, but over time, he ends up writing this great confession in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is David's map to repentance and what it took and what he did. And it gives us a map of repentance. What is repentance? According to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 87, it says, Repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God, doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. Based on this confession, I've divided the message into two parts. I've been, I, I divided it into the preliminary steps to repentance and then the actual steps of repentance. The preliminary steps of repentance are 
knowing your sin and knowing the God who forgives. So in the preliminary steps, I want to say that you need, in order to repent, you need to know that you're a sinner. Now, I know most of us know this. If you're a member of this church, you had to take a vow in which you confess that you were a sinner. The scriptures tell us that if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Although that we know that we sin daily because the Bible tells us and there's plenty of evidence that we do, yet we live in a state of constant denial of reality. We tend to excuse our sin. We tend to minimize our sin. We don't like looking at our sin. We don't like talking about sin. Sin is what other people do, not me. Yet the Scriptures have words like this in Genesis 6, 5. It says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth and that every inclination of the thought of the human heart was only evil all the time. So what do you do when you read that? I used to read it and say, well, that was back then. Certainly the human race has improved since then. Well, what do you think when you read Romans 3, 12? All have sinned and turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one good. Not even one. Well, perhaps that's an exaggeration. Why is it so hard for us to see our sin? I believe we think we're more righteous than we actually are. And that we're not as bad as the Bible says that we are. Have you ever looked in the mirror and didn't see what you what was really in front of you? You kind of look there and you see a picture of a person that, you know, you're kind of good looking. You're kind of looking, looking one way and maybe you've got a stomach and kind of, you, you can, you can tuck it in a certain, and then you go in, in, in the mall maybe and you see, a, and say, who is that? See, that's kind of what we do with sin. We see it and we don't see it. We see it, but we're looking in a mirror that we like. And so we look kind of favorably until we look into another mirror of the scriptures that tell us what we really are and we don't like it. What we see. It's so much easier to see other people's sin. Jesus says, why do you notice the speck in your brother's eyes and don't notice the log that's in your eye? We can't see our stuff. One day I was driving home having visited my brother and my wife and I are in the car and I'm being very critical of my brother about a characteristic. You know, he's kind of stingy with money. And I'm being very critical of him because I can easily see that. And my wife is very silent and she just kind of gives me that look like, uh, well, hmm, yeah, okay. And I'm realizing that I do the same thing. It's just so hard to see it in, in ourselves. The Word of God is the best light to shine on our sin, if you will allow it to. But we often, as the Scripture tells us, we look in the Scriptures and we walk away as a man looks in the mirror and forgets what he sees. So we often need people in our lives to tell us what's wrong, to point things out. But then we get defensive. We need Nathans in our life. 
True repentance starts when we're able to see and own up. Nathan approaches David and he eventually owns up. David acknowledges that his sin was not just a mistake, but it's something that goes to the very heart of our very being. It says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We're not sinners because we sin, but we sin because sin is in our very nature. And sin affects every part of our being. Sin affects our thinking, our emotions, our will. And that's what we mean when we talk about the doctrine of total depravity. Not that we're as bad as we could be, but that sin affects every part of us. There are people who have left our church because they didn't like the focus of of of. Of sin. You, you, you've got a confession in, in, in your very order of worship. And there are people who will not like or come to this church because they don't believe that we should be focusing on the fact that we're holy. That's good, but you will not appreciate that holiness until you understand the depravity. Eugene Peterson said, Only when I recognize and confess my sin am I in a position to recognize and respond to the great and central good news. Jesus saves. That's the good news. In the Christian life, our primary test isn't sin to avoid, which is impossible anyway, but to recognize sin. You can't appreciate the good news of the gospel without knowing the bad news of sin. You need to know that you're sick before you can go to a doctor. But you will not go to a doctor unless you know that the doctor is safe. And so the second preliminary step to repentance is that we need to know that God is merciful and gracious and that he's safe. And so the second preliminary step is to know that we have a God who forgives. Because the truth of the matter is that until we know that God forgives, we will not feel safe enough to look at our sin. We will not feel safe enough to go home. You remember the prodigal? The prodigal was in trouble. He was eating in the pigsty. But then he remembered. He remembered his father. He remembered that even the servants were treated well at his house. And he remembered that his father was gracious. And he went home to his father, willing to throw himself at the feet of his father because he knew his father was gracious. David was a man after God's own heart. And he knew more than theoretically that God existed. He had a personal relationship with God. He knew that God would show mercy, and that's why he said, Have mercy on me, O God. He knew that God was a God of steadfast love and abundant mercy. He knew that God was able to blot out his transgressions. David knew that God could wash him thoroughly from iniquity and cleanse him from his sin. And so he asked in verse 7, Purge me with hyssop. And I shall be clean and wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Perhaps David recognized the need for blood cleansing through the animal sacrifices, which 
was before him in the temple. David may have recalled the time when Israel was able to take a hyssop branch and dip it into blood and put some of the blood on the top and the bottom of the doorframe, and he might have remembered that from their history. David knew that God could create a new heart in him, and so he asked for a new heart. He knew that God could create a right spirit, so he asked for that. He knew that God could take his Holy Spirit from him because he'd taken it from Saul. And he said, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Cast me not away from your presence. And David knew the joy of communion with God and longed for restoration. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David knew that just sacrifices wasn't good enough. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And for us today, it is only when we know the God of the Bible who came in the person of Jesus Christ, only when we know that Jesus' blood was shed for our forgiveness of our sins will we feel safe enough. When that gets into us, will we feel safe enough to repent? And I want to give you the four steps to repentance. Not easy steps. Sometimes we get, can't get past the first step. But I've, I've delineated the steps as seeing our sin, confessing our sin, hating our sin, and turning from our sin. In order to repent, you need to see, confess, hate, and turn. See your sin. Do you see your sin. And seeing your sin is more than just seeing sin in general. I know I'm a sinner in general, but it's being very specific. David uses three different words to describe his sin in verses 1 and 2 in Psalm 51. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He uses the words transgressions, iniquity, and sin. Think of transgressions as doing something that you know is wrong, but you do it anyway. That's a transgression. Think of iniquity as as a bent, a twist. We are twisted in reality in our interests. We're born in iniquity. And think of sin, on the other hand, means to miss the mark. Our sin causes us to fall short of the glory of God. We're not only not able to meet God's standards, we actually can't even meet our own standard. Paul wrestles with this in Romans 7 when he says, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Can you see your sin? Do you call it sin? Gary Bridges, in his book, Respectable Sin, talks about sin we don't like to think of as sin. We like to think of gross things as sin. But he lists some of the things that we call respectable sins. Sins like anxiety. Did you know that anxiety was a sin? Be anxious for nothing, but in all things through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. Be anxious for nothing? You mean my work, my, my anxiety is actually a sin? Come on. 
Uh, don't I have to be concerned? Hmm. Frustration? You ever get frustrated? No, frustration cannot possibly be a sin. God's blocking my way. How about discontent? Paul had learned the secret of being content in all circumstances. Man, how, how, mm, discontent. Complaining? Complaining can't be a sin. Impatience? Oh, my. <laughs> Stepping on toes now. Impatience. It's hard for us to see ourselves as sinners, especially when someone else points them out. It's only, though, when we feel that it's safe, that we're not going to be judged. It's only then that we can really look at them. It's only when we know that God is not going to judge us because he has already judged Jesus Christ on the cross, that he's not going to judge us. It's only when we know that that we can stop being defensive, we can stop hiding, we can stop self-justifying. It is only when we realize that there really is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That has to be more than just theological words. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Jesus, you are free in Jesus. When, when that begins to sink into your soul, you can look at your sin. You don't have to be defensive. You don't have to be protective. God's got me. He, he, he's got my spirit. He's, he, he's not going to, other people may condemn you, but that's their problem. God's got you. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, from there we can confess our sin. Okay, God, it's real. Confessing our sin is more than just saying, I'm sorry. Confessing sin is admitting that we have sinned without blame shifting, without excuse making. Why was that hard? Confessing is more than saying, I broke the rules. It means knowing that we've offended a holy person. We're confessing before a holy God. And Psalm 51 is a model. David realizes that sin was not just a mistake, nor was it just breaking the rules, but it was personal. And so he says in verse 4, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Wait a minute. David had sinned against Bathsheba. He had sinned against Uriah. He had sinned against his very people, his kingdom. Yet, sin is always first before God. It's always first before God. When Israel was rebelling in the wilderness, Moses told them when they were complaining and murmuring all the time, Moses said, it's not against me that you're complaining. It's against God. It always starts there. And we have to take it there first. Until we realize that sin is personal, our repentance doesn't go very deep. It goes into, I'm sorry. I made a mistake. I'm not a good Christian. Sorry we got caught. 
David was willing to say and call sin, sin. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. He recognizes that he could not hide from his sin. I know that my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. David deserves judgment and he knows it. So he says in verse 4, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David admitted that his sin was no accident, but that sin was in his very nature. And he knows that he's going to do it again if God doesn't change his heart. And so he says in verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. Confession involves taking the whole blame without justifying yourself. David makes no excuses, does he? He doesn't blame shift to the pressures of work. He doesn't say the devil made him do it. He doesn't say that if Bathsheba had not been out there, you set me up. Repentance says, I did it. It's just so hard to sit under that, isn't it? I did it. Have you ever had to apologize for somebody to somebody you know you did wrong and you got you, you got the reason right there? But can you just go and apologize? It feels like death, doesn't it? It's so uncomfortable. Yes, but I got some reasons. Are you willing to say, yes, Lord, you're right. It's me. It's me, oh my, standing in the need of prayer. So, the first two steps of repentance is seeing your sin, recognizing it as sin, in all its ugliness, knowing that you're saved, and you go to your Father, and you confess it. Third step is hate your sin. We tend to get into this pattern of repeating our sin because we don't hate our sin. For many of us, repentance means being sorry and beating ourselves up and grieving. But true repentance involves a process of learning to hate the sin. We see this in David's prayer confession. David wants to be washed from feeling dirty. He says, in verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whited in snow. David doesn't want God to see his sin. He hates his sin without hating himself. Hide your face from my sin, he said. Don't hide your face from me. Hide your face from my sin. Blot out my iniquity. Don't blot me out. David knows that he's going to do it again unless God changes him. So he asks for a new heart. He hates the sin that caused the breach in the relationship with God. And so he says, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. You know how it feels when there's been a breach in the relationship with someone? You know that there's a cloud and you, 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 you wanna, you, you wanna, you, you've done something offensive and you don't wanna apologize. Because that's, that, that's painful. 
And so you try to clean it up. You try to be nice and hold. Oh, because you know there's a cloud and the only way to, to clear the cloud is to apologize. But you don't want to apologize because it's too painful. That's what David was feeling. There was a cloud. He used to enjoy his time with the Lord, but there was a cloud. And he just wants the cloud to go away so he can, he, he begins to hate his sin. He begins to hate the thing that caused the breach in the relationship. He doesn't hate himself. He wants a restored relationship. And hating our sins means that we're sorry that we offended a person. Hating our sins starts the grieving process of realizing that we've offended a person. And our grief turns to sorrow as we realize the length to which God went to restore us. When we meditate on the reality that it took the Son of God going to a cross. That's where reading the Psalms, singing hymns, is so helpful that we can get a picture of it so that we can begin to hate our sins. Because there's two ways that you can be sorry. You can be sorry that you got caught. You can be sorry that it makes you look bad as a Christian. Or you can be sorry that you've offended God. And one sorrow is worldly. But the other sorrow leads to repentance. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. And when we see that our sin is not an accident, but the product of our very nature, when we see that our sin is not impersonal, but against a personal holy God, when we see that our sin needs to be cleansed with a scrubbing brush, we begin to hate it. When we hate our sin enough, we turn from it and we come back to God. And the last step in repentance is turn, turn back to God. And when we turn back to God, we begin to recognize our purpose. We begin to see that we're not here for ourselves, but for others. When our hearts turn from sin, we turn from our self-orientation to other orientation. One continual refrain I hear from my spouse whenever I go to her about what did you think of this? Why do you think everything revolves around you? <laughs> it's not about you. We are naturally self-centered. <laughs> but God wants to restore us to other-centeredness, to God-centeredness, loving God with all our heart and soul and mind and our neighbor as ourself. Sin keeps us self-centered. Repentance makes us other-centered. And then we realize 2 Corinthians 5.15 when it says, He, Jesus, died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died for them and was raised again. David sees his purpose as not only to tell others, to get out to tell others, but he sees that his purpose is actually to praise God. Did you know that our purpose is to praise God? To praise God. Verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praises. True repentance produces joy. 
joy in the Lord like you've never experienced in the reality of, of where we are. That is why we were created, to seek after him, to, to find him, and to rejoice in him. You know, David committed adultery, murder, cover-up. He blew up his life. There were serious consequences, and, and sin produces very serious consequences. There was the loss of the child. There was family rebellion in, in David's family through Absalom and his other son. There was continual turmoil in his life. His life would never be the same. But God restored the joy of his salvation. God did not take his spirit from David. Seems unfair. How could God restore a cheating, adulterating, murdering liar? God could do it because instead of casting David from his presence, he cast his very own son from his presence on the cross. Instead of making David pay for his sin, Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Now, the interesting thing is that David only knew the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through the Verbal scriptures, perhaps it was written down uh, through Moses. He had a very limited view of, of, of God's plan of restoration of mankind. How much more should we be able to repent when we see what God did through His Son, through Jesus Christ, what His Son was willing to, to do, how His Son was willing to forgive those who even hung him on a cross. How much more should we know that we have a God that we can run to? We have a Father who's not at the door tapping his foot wondering, when is he going to come back? But we have a Father who runs and looks for us. God's kindness should lead us to repentance. Our kindness, God's kindness often leads us to taking Him for granted, but the kindness should lead us to run to Him with all of our strength and throw ourselves before Him because He loves us. He has wonderful plans for our lives. We've got some pretty limited plans in what we want to do. We're so ambitious and we want to make money and we want to be famous and we want to be cool and we just want to be accepted by the other kids and we just want this and that and the other. But God has much bigger plans in our little plan. We got little teeny weeny plans. God's got much bigger plans, but we have to be honest with him. We can't fake it anymore. We can't fake how good we are anymore. We just have to confess it. And again, repentance is not beating yourself up. It's being real before God who will restore you. And people will notice that joy that, that, that you have in you, even in the midst of difficulties, and they will ask you about the hope that they see in you. And it will give you a great opportunity to talk, talk about where you found the hope. One beggar talking to another beggar about where they found bread. That's, that's, what, that's what the church is. 
And none of this would be possible if God had not sent His Spirit who dwells in us. And repentance begins when the Spirit enables us to. So I would pray. I would ask you to pray that the Spirit would illuminate our hearts and our minds so that we can see. God, help me to see. Create a regular prayer life. I, 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 I have a journal and I pray for, for, for certain people on each day and, and some of them are going to require a, 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 it seems to me, a really big miracle. <laughs> if this person ever changes, and then others, you know, could you tweak? But the, the thing I noticed is that I started praying for these other people is that, well, how, how are you going to change? You know, if you irritate this person, how are, I mean, if this person seems irritable, well, how are you irritating them, perhaps? God always bounces it back to us. It all, it all comes back to our ability to just come before Him personally, confessing, recognizing our sin, confessing those sins, hating those sins, and turning to Him for salvation. You know, the interesting thing about the story of David and Bathsheba is that, is that, is that it doesn't, and that you would think that David blew up his life and well, now, now God's gonna go to plan B. But th- this was in the plan all along. Because, because the, the, the very genealogy of, uh, of Jesus, you know, you know, Bathsheba is in the very genealogy. And, and David's son, Solomon, ends up building the temple. Of God, it, you know, God's got one plan and includes all the junk that we have, that we bring into it. It, it. There's no plan B. There's one plan and God's aware. And that doesn't excuse sin. It just means that you need to recognize it and, and, and confess it before so, who already knows. You know, went to Adam and Eve and said, where are you? He knew exactly where they were, but did they recognize where they were? That they recognize that they were hiding. And that's what he does with us. Do you recognize that you're hiding? And, he, and God's safe. He loves you. When I think about how great, how good he is, I've got to explain with the Apostle Paul who said, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. Let us pray. Our gracious Father, God and King, we thank you that you are God and we are not. We thank you that you forgive us our sins. We thank you that there is only one who is truly righteous. His name is Jesus Christ. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. He is our King. I pray that you would make us aware of our Lord, that we would go to Him. We, we need you. We need you in the very depths of our being. I pray that you would unblock us, unblock our tendencies to hide to cover up, to be defensive, to be protective, and enable us to be real with you. And as we are real with you, we'll be real with our neighbors and we'll be there for our neighbors. We'll love them. We, 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 we'll, we'll sacrifice for them because we have made things right with you first. 
So I pray for each person here. I pray that if there's any who don't know you, I pray that you would open up their hearts and their minds to the reality of your presence. I pray for my brothers and sisters who struggle with sin every day. That there, that first of all, that there really is a struggle. That they haven't lied to themselves and said, well, I don't sin. I pray that they would recognize it, confess it, and come and receive the joy that's in the salvation through Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for this church. I pray for its development, its growth. I pray for Alex, uh, that uh, he and Lakita are enjoying their anniversary that, that you allowed them to have as they got uh, married some years ago. And you've, you've enabled them to enjoy their, their time together. And I pray that they would be rejoicing because they know you. Thank you again, Lord Jesus, for your word, for Psalm 51, and for what it teaches us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.